Hi, Vince. Hey, Jeremiah. Thank you for doing this. I know it's super early, and uh, yeah. How are you doing? Doing all right. Yeah. Oh, we have a wonderful thing here. The kids are now at school, so it's working from home the way it's supposed to be. Or you're just you just get to hang out by yourself all day and do whatever you want. No one's harassing you. You know, as long as uh, you can convince. Um, the employees in group one that you are doing something for group two and convince the employees in group two that you're doing something for group, in group one. You can have the whole day to yourself. It's just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Find a way to hide in the middle. I think there are, uh, there are millions of people in, uh, in large corporations that do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on a daily basis. Uh, so today I thought we would talk about the situation of managing someone who is like a specialist, someone who has a certain degree of highly technical or specialized knowledge that no one else on the team does, including yourself as the manager. And how do you keep that as a nice, healthy relationship and a productive process? Uh, there's a lot of you know, complications there. Uh, many, many managers, when they start out, it's um, the traditional way to find a manager in a technical uh, organization is to find someone who's really good at their job, some sort of senior, at that particular job and then say, hey, you're great, uh, but we need 10 of you and you can't multiply yourself by 10 because we haven't worked out cloning yet. So what we're gonna have to do is we're gonna have to make you a manager and you're gonna have to make 10 copies of yourself and take all of your knowledge and expertise and just sort of pour it into these 10 people we're gonna hire and then and then that's gonna be great. And um, that, that kind of works for a while, but eventually you're gonna be in a situation where they're gonna be like, and we also need for this project to work, this expert who has knowledge that you have no idea what this knowledge is, or you're very bad at it, or you're brand new to it and they're a senior, and you're gonna to have to have them work on your team. And that is a, stress, a new and a stressful situation for many people. And I think almost every manager eventually falls into this at some point. When, when you have to spend a significant amount of your time enabling the people in your team or hiring or, or doing other activities, it means you can't keep pace with the technology. And over a long enough period, that has, that has the outcome of you, know, you not knowing things as well as the people on your team. Yeah, and it is actually a, a good thing over time. Uh, everybody wants to develop their skills, move through move their career. Um, and uh, as a result of that, when you get to this situation where you're hiring people or in, engaging people who have specialized knowledge that you don't have, it is sort of one of those signs of you kind of progressing in your career and taking on uh, a larger role of responsibility. So Jeremiah, what are some, uh, some teams you've managed where you, uh, you didn't have that specialist expertise? Oh, well, yeah. I, again, in the fintech industry, right, you do have people who are very, very good at particular types of math or, or computational tricks, uh, algorithms, and things like that. And you sort of have to, you, you have to work with those guys because they're going to provide a lot of secret sauce there. And uh, and they're going to start talking about mathematical terms you don't really know. Okay. Now, <laughs> That's one now, of them. I was once um, director of emerging technology for a, for a fairly large company. And and part of what I would do, right, is is create new teams around technologies. And and it was such a, a um, broad spectrum, right, that I couldn't possibly be an expert in those things, right? This included a, you know, a cloud architecture team, which I, I knew pretty well, right? But also a Salesforce development team, an infrastructure architecture, 
all kinds of things, right? And, and at some point, there's no way you can know the whole spectrum at that level of depth. And, that, and that's a cool job and because you do have that opportunity to, to touch and, and get involved with so many different ideas and ways of solving things and problems people are working on. But if, absolutely, if you attempted to be an in-depth specialist and a technical resource for all of those particular types of technologies, you would be totally failing at the job that they hired you, they were expecting you to do. Yeah. Now, now there are a lot of different different companies, right, in different styles. And what I'd look for in any any management role is what percentage of it is hands on, right, all the way from ninety percent, and maybe you're just mentoring somebody up to a hundred percent management and zero hands on. There's a there's a scale there, and you know the the company and the specific environment is going to change for for everybody that's listening to this. So yep. just try to understand where you are on that scale, how much of your time should be spent in that hands-on. And if you haven't had that discussion with, with your own leadership, that'd be a good thing to, to know. And it's, what the probably, it's kind of interesting because there are a lot of different titles uh, you know, around manager, associate director, director, other titles like that. And it can be a little hard to figure out where you are. If you're interviewing for different jobs, it can be a little difficult to figure out how your job is matching up with this other job that you're interviewing for and how, what, how hands-on you're supposed to be can be a sort of a useful metric. You're like, Oh, okay. This job kind of aligns with the job I currently have because it's kind of the same amount of hands-onness. Now I've also seen right where people at one point were an expert in something, right? You, Maybe you're running a, a networking team or even a software development team, which tends to move even more rapidly. And over a period of time, right, you spend more time doing the management activities and the technology moves on. You know, maybe you just decide I'm not going to learn this new thing right now. I'll get to it later. Well, there's going to be two new things later and uh, yep. you'll, you'll forever be playing catch up. That's, a, that's again, but, a very nervous making situation for someone who's used to being a technical uh, expert is to begin but, to realize that technology is moving past them. And, and on the management side, right, you have a whole new uh, array of concerns, right? You're, you're supposed to be, in some ways, depending on the organization, right, the abstraction layer for those employees, for those people, so they don't have to deal with, how do I get replacement equipment when my stuff is broken? What about my benefits? You know, what happens come, come raise or promotion time? Your job is to make those things as simple as possible for those folks, right? To take a lot of those pains away so they can focus on those jobs. Absolutely. You know, you can be a force multiplier for everybody on that team in a way that is harder as an individual contributor. Yes, because uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? People need to get paid. They need to be healthy. They need to have shelter, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> If you can, I don't think Maslow had paid on there, but I think that makes perfect sense. First, first thing in the hierarchy needed is get paid. Yeah, but you people need uh, need that kind of stuff, and if you can, as much as possible, take that take that stress off their plate, then they will, in turn, be happier and able to solve other problems. And they will absolutely be like, yeah, that's you know, if you can if you can do a great job with that, so I can focus on the thing that I come into the office every day to do, that would make my day so much better. And you would be providing value. So how do you how do you go about this coming in as a as a manager now of the first team or or the or the first group of specialists that you don't have expertise uh, in the area? What what would you do? Well, I would say that uh, you do provide expertise and value, just not in that technical area. You provide expertise in uh, understanding the the business problem that 
the team is trying to solve and being able to translate that into technical specifications or technical milestones, some sort of schedule of how your strategy for how you're going to solve this problem and understanding the company's various goals and initiatives and how those are going to impact the way you're going to solve the problem, the solutions that are going to be working and things like that. And bringing that to the team and, and just translating it down into something that everyone can understand and agree with mm-hmm. and then not have to think about because you're the one who is, who is solving that problem. Okay. So I'd say, right, that's, that's helping to provide a clear context for the team, right? Helping, yep. helping them understand the company's vision and mission and how the work that they do contributes to, to the success of that. Yes, absolutely. And another thing that is also worth uh, talking about is that you are as much as possible uh, trying to, to build a team that will succeed and win in the future. And so you are also developing the various members to say cross train on particular technologies and as much as possible, be able to handle the changes in situation, the changes in environment they're going to be coming in the future um, so that they can continue to be successful. So you're developing the team as well as sort of just sort of dictating the rulings from on high. So the first thing that occurs to me there with the team, right, is you have to establish trust within the team, right? And help people understand what those boundaries are, what acceptable behaviors are, the things that help create the culture of the team. Yeah. And, and the first way, right, of, of building that trust is saying, here's what I can do for you guys as a manager. It can't be solving every problem because I can't be the expert on everything. Yes. And, and pretty much right in, in any team makeup, no one person is the expert on everything in the team. And if they are, then it's a bit of a problem. Yeah, it, you really have a bus, a bus problem at that point. But yeah, and it is a, a, a temptation, again, for a, someone who's used to being a technical manager to attempt to continue to hold that mantle of expertise in areas where, they, where it's becoming obvious that there are other people on the team who are better than them at those particular areas or, or more knowledgeable. And you've got to be careful of that. It's a, it's a, it's a trap where you can, you can say, well, I'm, I'm the guy who knows everything there is to know about writing SQL queries just give me this thing or let me debug this or, you know, let, I don't think you're approaching this the right way. And then the, the person who's more expert at it is like, no, you're, you're missing this latest feature. You don't understand how these particular pieces work together. Um, and they can make you look uh, bad to the team because you've sort of pretended to have a certain level of expertise that you actually didn't have. And uh, that, that can erode trust. So you, you have to be honest about that. It's, it's going to be a difficult thing. It's going to be something that people, have trouble letting go of that they're not the expert, but it can be it can cause distrust if you pretend to be an expert and you're not. Now, I've also seen this one go a little bit too far, where people say, "Okay, well, I can't be the expert on on everything, so I'm going to not care about that stuff anymore, and I'm only going to do those management things, and I'm not going to pay attention to the technology because I know I can't win at that game." Yeah, because technologists like technologists. They like working for technologists, people who understand what they're dealing with. If you are completely divorced from that in all ways, then people are going to be like, well, this guy doesn't really get what's going on anymore. He, used to, he was good at this 20 years ago. So part of that to me comes down to, you know, managing things that you have some understanding of. 
And, and I've seen people try to manage things they have zero understanding of and not even try to learn. And, and that also gets to the point where, you know, they also don't know how to hire people who know anything about it because yeah. they, they can't even gauge. Yeah, they get afraid to ask questions where the person comes back with a bunch of stuff. They're like, oh, I don't know if this question is, this is a good answer or, or, or a fake answer. I can't, I can't figure yeah. it out. Yeah, it can be very... But also, right, then, not knowing when to push back when an estimate is, is way too large or too small. And, and when you don't have any understanding of a domain or, or context at all, you can't provide as much help to the team. Yeah. That, you know, do you want to dig into that thing about the pushing back on the estimates? Because I think that's a very interesting problem. Or we can sure, talk, talk about, about that. that yeah. So... That you know, that's really hard. Hey, you know, we need to solve this thing. We need to, uh, you know, interface with Salesforce in order to solve this problem. How long is it going to take to build the interface? And someone says, so it's going to take four months. And you're like, okay, well, you're the expert. Yeah. I really don't like that answer, <laughs> but I don't know what to do. So what what do you do in that case? Like that's a, you know, how do you, how do you get that to work? And, and I've been through this situation, right, where, you know, I inherited a, uh, a manager who couldn't tell if something was, I think the analogy is a, a bread basket or a bus, right? Didn't know if one week was reasonable or 10 weeks was reasonable, an, an order of magnitude off. And right. you, that, that to me is the level that you really, you, you struggle to manage at. You have to be able to trust your people and to at least like work through the, the rational thought process of their estimates. Yep. Um, I, I, them, I think blind trust has to, has to be earned. And I, I guess it's not blind trust at that point, right? It's right. once somebody yeah. has earned your trust and has demonstrated their expertise, right? Then you can start ignoring and, and, and not paying attention to that. But there's certainly a level where people have to prove their competence and to earn the right for their estimates to not be questioned. Yes. And I think that is sort of one of the reasons for the interest and adoption of agile uh, methodologies and t-shirt sizing and, and uh, techniques like that. Because in a way, you know, back in the seventies and eighties and things like that, everyone kind of ran on a trust me kind of uh, policy of how they're going to do estimates. Well, I really know this and it's really technical. It's going to take this amount of time. And this, this process that's sort of very popular in agile of, of breaking down the, uh, the various epics and the very, very tiny stories that can be digested in two days or a week or things like that helps uh, the specialist translate their very long, complicated process into something that other people can understand. And they can say, well, this particular piece, yeah, that probably is not a, a one month piece. That is probably a three day piece, right? You're just you know, installing the libraries in the code base. That can't possibly take a month. And, and things like that. So it, it's the, the ability to, to break down the problem into to very small problems that then are understandable because there's very few problems that can't be understood if they're small enough. Then, then you have a much better relationship with what this person is doing. And that, that I think is why Agile, one of the reasons that Agile is a very popular way of managing software projects. You also want to sort of hold people to their estimates and their, and their, checkpoints as much as possible because another uh, thing that can happen is someone can sort of talk about, Hey, it's going to take this amount of time. And then it just keeps sliding forever because there's, there's no way to, 
There's no way to know right. if they're Any asymptotically approached done. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way for anyone else on the team to know how, how much they're getting done every day or if they're, if they're getting close or they're, you know, goofing off or something. So, so it can be a problem where every, every three days you're like, Hey, well, this is supposed to be done. Where are you? Oh, it's going to take, you know, a couple more days. And, um, that's a, that's a thing where you, you need to, uh, hold them to some sort of measurable standard. Mm. Um, you can absolutely be in a very unpleasant situation where no one else on the team knows how to solve this problem. And this person never seems to be getting this problem solved. And that, that's a really, you know, that's really unpleasant. You really have to bring in some sort of outside help somehow to, to get that thing uh, figured out. So, so Jeremiah, have you ever been um, the expert or the specialist in something and then had a, uh, a new manager uh, assigned who had no idea um, what you did or how you did it and, and how did that work out for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, that was really pretty stressful because, um, the manager had a particular set of ideas about how this was going to go. Uh, particularly they wanted to, to reduce some of the resources on the team, uh, that they thought were, uh, not really con contributing. And, um, I had to spend a lot of time being like, it's, you know, it's me and this other guy. We both do these two things, and and that other guy has to stay. Like he can't, he can't not be part of the team because we're zero zero effectiveness if it's just me. And it took a long time to explain to this this manager of the value that we were both providing because he could understand what I was providing, but he couldn't understand what this other guy was providing, and, and the other guy was off site. So it it took a long time to sort of uh, work on that and it was just, it was pretty stressful. <laughs> I, I don't really, I don't really remember having any techniques except that I can, like had to sort of say the same thing 10 or 15 meetings in a row. <laughs> like, no, we're in this thing. This guy's doing this. I'm doing this. We're both doing things. We both need to continue to be working. Things like that. So. Well, that's actually, so what's really struck out to me uh, about that, right, is that you were there to help protect the other people on the team. Right. It was, it was yeah. the manager understand everybody's value. And that's a great team member, right? Who does that? <laughs> well, I, I absolutely couldn't do what he was doing. So, so I, I wanted to keep my job. And I wanted it, was, to it, was, it was just self-interest. It okay. was absolutely a, a blind self-interest. Yeah. So, so that was, that was one part of it. Um, I had, I, I, I did, I have had situations with uh, managing people who were, you know, specialists in areas that I had no idea what they were doing. And it, it did take a long time to, to work with them because you want to trust people and you want, you want them to do good work, but it's really hard to understand whether their estimates, whether, whether they're missing their estimates because they are not working as hard as they agreed to work mm -hmm. or because it turns out that they just were bad at the estimate like many, many people are and they just misestimated it by a bit and they're, they're underwater and they're, and they're struggling. And, and really the, the only way I, I've been able to deal with that is to develop relationships with those people like at, on a personal level to get a sense of how they are and what's, you know, what kind of stress they're under and if they, if they are, you know, being an honest broker with everyone else on the team, because it's just so, it's just so hard to, to, in that situation, 
to, no one's perfect. Everyone's going to be making mistakes, missing deadlines. You know, something's going to break or, or not perform the way it's supposed to perform. And this whole problem of is this behavior that's acceptable or is this something that's uh, unusual and needs to be uh, dealt with is really, it, it gets worse when you don't know the, the stuff that they're actually working on. I would say that some of these problems actually become more common the higher up the, the ladder you get in an environment. The, the CIO is, is typically not an expert in all of these areas, right? Infrastructure, architecture, development, security. And, and then where that, wherever that CIO reports, right, whether it's the CEO or the COO or CFO, wherever that is, Right. They're going to generally know even less about that, right? Because then they're going to have IT and finance and, and whatever the operations or, or sales. So it becomes a really common problem at the executive level where people don't really understand what you do or wouldn't know how to do that and couldn't provide any assistance to you at all. What, you know, what they can't always provide, right, is, is a relationship and try to and, and an attempt to understand the pressures that you have. And when you push back on something to say, oh, our IT department can't deliver um, general AI in six months with the budget that we have, or even with any budget, right? You know, <laughs> that relationship is, is what leads to the trust for them to actually believe you rather than just assuming that you are incompetent and any, anybody else in that position could do that thing. Yes, absolutely. And actually, you, one thing you described there, it, talking to those types of people, often they're, they're like, hey, just give me like a very, very simple explanation. Give me a one page diagram of what's going on. And I, of course, a, a, a deeply technical junior member of the team might be like, ah, this person has no idea. They're uh, so frustrating to work for this moron who doesn't know what we do. Um, but it is extremely, like it's very much, hey, you know what? I have a lot of things I'm trying to manage and coordinate and although I might like to, to get deep into this problem, by doing that, I would fail at the job I am supposed to be doing, which is managing all these various pieces. And so that is another way of sort of times when I've been the specialist and I've been trying to explain to someone higher up what's going on. It, it is very much this, you know, you have to understand where they're coming from and try yeah. to help, help curate the information as much as possible to be the useful information and not the extra information. And to that, I'd say, right, building trust is, is the basis for all of this stuff because it helps you assume positive intent. Once you, yeah, you start very to important. somebody as a person rather than as, as, a, as a cog who's supposed to be doing this thing that the, I, I want that is magic and it's not happening, right? When, you know, seeing them as a person who, who is working hard and knowing that they're working hard trying to do the right thing and trying to help make you successful you'll kind of respect when they can push when they push back and say that's it can't be done in that that time absolutely and that positive intent works both ways right because again you hire the specialist and the specialist may have a differentiated salary some extra benefits as a result of having this specialized knowledge mm. and, and absolutely one of the first things that anyone does when they hire someone like this is they say and we need you to cross train to other people on the team right because you of course whatever this specializ specialization is you you want to sort of socialize it within the company and not have just it all rely on one guy. But, but by saying that you're saying like, we want you to reduce your uh, differentiated value and, and dilute it and spread it out amongst the company. And that's a, 
they have to trust you, the, the manager, that you're doing that with positive intent, not just, I'm going to sort of hire you, extract your knowledge into the company, and then cast you aside once you are no longer of use to me, right? Uh, obviously, you know, no one's like that except for some sort of crazy, you know, movie villain, but, but it's... It, it's a problem and it's an emotional problem that people can have as they try to cross train. They're like, I'm cross training my own value away. Um, so it, the positive intent goes both ways. So, so here's a, a, a story that I, I, I hope you haven't heard before, but it was probably around 2003 and uh, I was like highly technical, right? So, doing a lot of development, I would document what I was doing in Visio. So I'd lay out a cool architecture diagram, uh, get people to buy into it, and then go build it. And, and I had a boss who told me, I don't want you to use, I, I want you to translate all that stuff and, and do it into PowerPoint so that these project managers can, can make changes. Okay. At which point I said, no, and left his office. <laughs> because that's unreasonable. I don't want them do. I don't want them making changes. Okay. And then I then I thought, all right, well, it's maybe not cool to do, to say that to my boss. Maybe I'm going to get into trouble for this. So <laughs> I got to I got to walk back and say, all right, I'll let me take a stab at this and see how it goes. And uh, so I did right. And and pretty much since then, I default to doing these things in PowerPoint. Because it forces you, it forces me to write, think of it as, you know, first a, a finite screen size, right? Because you're not going to be able to scale that. It and only fit about that, like 18 boxes on that screen. And then you're done. Right. <laughs> and that forces you to think about it in terms of simplicity and the communication first. So I start from there now, and then we'll drill down into much more technical diagrams and detail. But even that you can do section by section in PowerPoint. Where, you know, where I still, in, in hindsight, think he was horrendously wrong was saying that the project managers could now edit it. <laughs> it doesn't work out well. But the so whole point this, of, this whole box here and put in build a good general AI and put right. it in a box, and that's then your diagram is done. But the, the thing for me was as a specialist, right, am I giving up? my knowledge by making it more accessible or am I writing, making myself obsolete by doing those sorts of things? And I certainly wasn't right. Because if the project manager or, or whatever non-technical resource, you're worried about them editing or changing that stuff. Just remember that if they could do that, they could have written it in the first place. Oh yeah. That's a good point. And, and the other thing is no matter what you're doing, everybody wants to eventually do something else. And it gets to be a bit old to be doing the same thing. And, and by the yeah. time you train someone to be as good as you at a particular problem, A, there will be twice as much work already because the company will be like, hey, this is a successful you know, uh, initiative. Let's do yeah. more of this. And you'll all have more work. Or B, you'll be kind of tired of it anyways and kind of happy to hand it off to someone else so you can do something else. And if you have no one to hand it off to, you're going to be stuck doing it. Uh, if it's valuable to the company. So that's a good point, right? That, that empowering others and, and delegating and pushing off that work allows you to take on new things and allow, yeah. and, and at that point, right, you're in the position to understand what's going to be more valuable to the company. So if you can push off lower value tasks, right, do that. Yeah, that's a good point. 
you know, th there can also be a lot of stresses between various specialists in the team because, again, specialists are probably going to get paid different. They're probably going to get paid better. Um, they they may tell other people that they're getting paid better and and sort of lord that over people. Hey, I'm the valuable member of this team. Mm -hmm. You're the easily replaceable junior programmer, and that can be that absolutely can happen. And um, that's absolutely something that the, the manager has to step in. And if, I, most companies, that is reprehensible team behavior, and it has to be corrected. That, that would be a bad team member. I mean, theoretically, there are companies that are like, no, absolutely, we're getting the best people. They're going to be horrible to each other, but we're all going to crush it, and that's how we do things. But in most companies, you this is absolutely somewhere something that the, the manager is like, no, like like we have to work together as a team. We can't be uh, sort of abusing each other in the emotionally this way uh, just because it's a possibility. So that that's definitely something that you have to kind of work on. Uh, and it and it's a team dynamic problem. People have to work together. And your job as a manager is to make sure that people are treating each other right. I think another point is even if even if you're not the specialist in something and, and you're near the specialist, have some intellectual curiosity. They, you know, they, they may be able to, to do this certain thing and, and nobody else on the team has to worry about it. That doesn't mean they don't want to talk about it and they don't want people to care what they do and maybe even a little bit how they do it. So having some intellectual curiosity about, about what other people do, it, it helps you build that relationship. That's a good point. They, uh, they also obviously value what they do. Otherwise, they wouldn't be spending all this, you know, huge chunk of their life doing it. So, yeah, they, there are parts of it that they care about. They may not, there, there may be parts that they sort of have to deal with that frustration. But, but yeah, find those, find those things out and they'll be happy to talk to you. And, and again, with the idea of cross-training and, and building a team that can solve this problem, not just one person, match them up with other people who have a similar set of interests. You know, try to get space so that people can um, advertise their expertise to a group of like-minded people in the company. You know, you'll grow it that way. And uh, that, you know, that's going to eventually help everyone. Now, I'd also step back and say, if you're not dealing with this specialist problem right now, just wait. I think the trend here has been as the IT sector, or, you know, as, as software has kind of eaten the world and, and will continue to do so. There are more people working in information technology and there's an increase in specialization. Right now, right, your company may have an AI team and they may focus on neural networks, but over time, that's even that is going to get drastically more specialized and, and already is in larger, larger companies like Google, right? You'll have somebody who works on just vision problems or, or just back propagation, right? And, yep. and that trend towards increased specialization and generally um, increased complexity in technology is going to continue. Absolutely, yeah. You are, uh, it's entirely possible that you will have a team where you have a guy who's a data scientist type of person and is working with the machine learning type of problems and a guy who is working with mobile uh, frameworks and doing UI stuff related to mobile frameworks. And there's probably a third guy who's trying to figure out your containers and your, your integrations and your, uh, your pipelines and things like that. All three of those jobs 
just are wildly different from each other. And there, there's, you're going to need specialists in all of them in order to succeed at you know, very many types of problems I can think of. And, and those guys are, you know, they're all going to have different things that they think that they are just an, an enormous contributor and things that they're a little nervous about the fact that it seems like you know, the industry is going in this direction and I, I have none of that knowledge, right? And, and please don't kind of push me on that because it's going to, it's going to expose the fact that I'm not a perfect technologist in all ways. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and they're going to not overlap all those people. <laughs> so you're going to have to work that together. So, you know, and I think the same thing applies to, to other areas of life as well. You know, if uh, old people drive slower, it's because that was high speed back then when things were, were simple. And, uh, and, and it's going to be the same thing with, with our, our children, right? These are the good old days back when everything was still simple. Um, it's going well, to get more complex over time. It's going to, uh, it's going to mess us up so badly. And, and things, it, it, it gets hard to so imagine. On this right? changing disaster, you know? That's right. It's just going to be, oh, it's going to be so bad. Yeah. Just wait till uh, the cars drive themselves and start going faster and, uh, and closer together. Oh man. Yes. Oh, yeah, I had, that, that's going to be awful when that happens. I hadn't thought about the faster part. Or I, I hadn't thought about the part of you being inside the car when it's going faster and closer together. I see those pictures of like, hey, this is the future where the cars are all, you know, much closer, tighter packed on the, on the highway. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about the fact that I would be inside them quietly wetting myself because I'm terrified. Interestingly <laughs> enough, this is, this is our, you know, it's been happening for the last couple of decades, even in aviation with better electronics and reporting to, you know, air traffic control and other things, uh, vertical separation has decreased. So planes are now flying closer together in, in tighter formations for, for airport landings because we have better technology to monitor those things and, and to react to them. Uh, that's very, oh man. Oh, the future's gonna These are gonna be the good old days. <laughs> you could actually manage driving um, like manually. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. How, how are you going to deal? Like, if you have to take over manual controls in a situation where all the cars around you are just much, much faster and closer together. That's right. It's gonna but the be- same thing applies to technology, right? Back when, when you could, you know, code a whole app by yourself yeah. <laughs> without the aid of uh, computer-generated code and all these other, other things that are going to come out, right? NBI. <laughs> yeah. None of these, none of these uh, you know, Visual Studio gizmos or anything like that yeah <laughs> so. all right just well i think we, we certainly covered uh um the specialist thing pretty well i think that was good thanks you so have much. a great day and a great weekend okay you too Bye. take care if you like the show please show us some love on the apple podcasts and share it with your friends the views and opinions are solely those of the speakers and not the opinions of any third party the same holds true for guests if we ever have guests We don't guarantee completeness or accuracy. We don't assume responsibility or liability for the information. This content is provided for general information only, and if you choose to rely upon it, you do so at your own risk. This should not be considered professional advice. Thank you.